0: Hello and welcome to David's Politics Show. On today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Michael O'Hanlon on the show. He is a senior fellow in, and in fact, the director of research of, the Foreign Policy Studies program at the prestigious Brookings Institution, where he holds the Sidney Stein Jr. Chair. He has published widely on the future of warfare, NATO, nuclear disarmament, and foreign policy more broadly. To name just a few of his publications, some 20 years ago, he wrote his first book on technological change and the future of warfare as well as a book on the NATO campaign in Kosovo. In 2010, he followed that up with a skeptics case for nuclear disarmament. And in more recent years, he has focused on the future of land warfare, as well as territorial disputes between China and Japan. This year, he's out with a one-two combination of, on the one hand, Defense 101, Understanding the Military of Today and Tomorrow. And the book we will discuss today, The Art of War in an Age of Peace, U.S. Grant Strategy, and and Resolute Restraint, which is out with Yale University Press. In addition to authoring several hundred opinion pieces in, in newspapers, including The Washington Post, The New York Times, The Financial Times, The Wall Street Journal, he has also published articles in Foreign Affairs, The National Interest, and Washington Quarterly, among other publications. He has taught as both a visiting lecturer at the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton University and as an adjunct professor at Syracuse, Columbia, and Georgetown. Michael O'Hanlon has degrees in physics and engineering, as well as a PhD in public and international affairs, all from Princeton. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you. It's really nice to be with you, David. Appreciate you having me on. So I'd like to begin our conversation today by talking about what you see as the twin threats to U.S. foreign policy at the moment, retrenchment on the one hand and overextension uh, on the other. Tell us why you think these are the two the two main dangers at the moment. What they what they would look like or what they could look like, and why both should be avoided. Yeah, thanks. Well, you know, of course, one can frame top
1: dangers in different ways. I might have also said China and Russia, but then I wouldn't be particularly creative. That's that's sort of the prevailing set of assumptions, and it may also be true. Uh, so I don't necessarily disagree with that prevailing orthodoxy, but. The way I like to think is increasingly in terms of history. And uh, I think that the United States has learned the lesson of World War II and the Cold War, which is that we need to stay engaged. We need to be resolute. We need to be strong. We can't give in to aggression. We can't appease. All those lessons were learned. And I think, you know, there's a lot of truth to them. And so we've maintained Mm -hmm. strong alliances in Western Europe and East Asia uh, ever since World War II. And, you know, in the Cold War, we were probably, if anything over uh involved in some conflicts partly to signal that we were taking things seriously and and wouldn't be caught napping again like we arguably were before before both world war one and world war two so the Mm -hmm. the um the resoluteness part is well learned and i think it's generally correct because you know uh, again we saw that the world wars broke out when there was no big stabilizing power that could sort of you know help the parties to these various rivalries in Europe in particular uh, stabilize the situation. But then uh, we've also seen at times in history, whether American history or more generally European history, that when great powers get overly rivalrous and start misinterpreting every small action by the other side as the beginning of a major threat, Mm -hmm. they sometimes wind up creating conflict where none really needed to exist. And uh, there's a famous professor at Harvard, Graham Allison, who wrote a book that you may know called Thucydides Trap. He right, basically right. talks about you know, the Greeks back in the day, uh, ancient times, and how um, the rise of Athens gave the city-state of Sparta this sense of dread and foreboding and led to a preventive war, if you will, or each mm-hmm. side was was so inclined to mistrust the other and worry about where things could be in five or 10 or 20 years that you got a conflict really almost out of expectation of conflict, like it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. And more recently, I think that world war one is the poster child for how, you know, an unnecessarily, um, trivial, not trivial, right. but small problem, the assassination right, right. of one heir to the throne of Austria, Hungary, combined with rivalries that had been allowed to run amok and a sense by various parties that they could not allow the other to get a quick head start, even of a day or two or three in mobilization, That this kind of thinking produced a war that was really one of the most tragic and, frankly, ridiculous outcomes in human history in terms of war and peace and conflict. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I worry that Russia and China, both being very proud countries with potentially flawed decision making processes and also a sense that the United States and its allies are dominating world affairs today they could both wind up trying to assert themselves a little bit near their own borders, as we see them doing, actually, uh, right. all the time. Right. And, and, and we could conclude that the only way to respond was through you know, an escalatory military response, believing that we still had enough power and advantage over them that we could quell whatever you know, disturbance had, 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 had occurred. Quickly, and so I'm not really in favor of those kinds of escalatory war plans. I think they could arise over some of the small uninhabited islands in the Western Pacific. They could arise over small islands in the Baltic Sea. They could arise over Ukraine, which is not a NATO member, of course, but still matters to the United States and the West, and matters a lot to Russia. There are a lot of places where, uh, you know, especially in the near abroad to Russia and China, where you could imagine conflicts arising over small little sparks that then, you know, ignite gasoline, if you will, in, in the uh, kind of a relationship and, and in the spirit of mistrust that we would have developed between Russia and China. And one more specific concern, which is why I think that this over, it's not so much overextension, but it's, you know, because I think the United States can afford our current defense burden, but it's it's more mm-hmm. the likelihood of provoking a reaction or a backlash. Uh, And so what I worry about, for example, is if we do try to expand NATO to include Ukraine and Georgia, I think we'll be making a big mistake that Russia would be particularly sensitive about. Uh, I'm not saying Russia deserves a veto over the future sovereign decisions of Ukraine and Georgia. But if we know full well going in that it's going to be a highly provocative action to bring a former Soviet republic into NATO, why do we do it? It's, It's almost as if we have gotten too sort of sanctimonious about our, mm-hmm. you know, our motives and our role in the world and have failed to appreciate that others often don't see us quite that nobly intended and right, also right. And, and have, you know, reactions to things that happen, especially near their own borders. So um, I, I am concerned about, um, you know, over over assertiveness by the United States. Um, and I yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm concerned about retrenchment as well, although that doesn't seem as likely in today's world. It was more likely in the Trump presidency that could come back. Uh, but uh, basically, in summary, the fact that World War One and World War Two both happened without the United States being engaged in Eurasia and then World War Three was successfully prevented when we were engaged. Those facts tell me that we should stay involved and that we uh, need to avoid the temptation of retrenchment. But the experiences in places like Europe uh, in the outbreak of World War I, remind me that nation states being what they are, we need to remember that there's the possibility of misinterpretation, of of Mm -hmm. proud, uh, you know, reaction by one side or another, then inflaming a relationship. And so we need to be careful about over uh, assertion as well and a, over assertiveness. so those are the, the, the twin dangers that i'm trying to steer between
0: right yes and it is very interesting that you mention the importance of of history here this whole this whole podcast is is devoted to the idea precisely that current affairs are ultimately only intelligible in terms of uh, in terms of the, a historical perspective which is which is often forgotten and one of the things i think we're seeing actually specifically with reference to world war 1 is more and more this talk of you know china as basically being imperial germany and the us being some amalgam of the british empire and or and or the french empire is there not a danger in that kind of talk which i think is more prevalent in in political science of you know placing placing uh, the us today us and china today in, in the same kind of structural roles as were arguably existing at the time. And then kind of, you know, playing, playing the the game forward and saying, well, then, you know, conflict is pretty much predetermined.
1: Right. Well, the last part you're never going to get me to buy into, I feel like, I mean, I, I know you're caricaturing a debate or a line of argument that other people use, not necessarily expressing your own view, but I find that mm-hmm. way of thinking that some people have to be sort of lazy. Nothing is predestined in life. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, h- history is. Full of patterns, but the patterns uh, obviously uh, are somewhat conflictual, right? There are patterns of peace and patterns of war. There are patterns right. of countries becoming friends and patterns of countries becoming enemies. How can we say when every current and future situation is different from those of the past? How can we claim to be able to predict the future as if we're using a law of physics, you know, to mm-hmm. uh, to, to sort of say what uh, what non-thinking objects will do? So inevitability to me is basically. A non-starter in global politics, for for better or for worse. There's nothing inevitable about progress. There's nothing inevitable about war. But um, I take your point on looking at the analogy, and I do think that's why I say I'm sometimes struck by the World War One parallel. And I think you in Europe remember it better than we in the United States. The United States was a latecomer to World War One. It was not nearly as consequential in our national consciousness as World War Two became. It was not nearly as consequential as as it was for Europeans who fought it for four years. Even if you are there in Switzerland, you were close by to it and you watched all the countries that were participants in it. And you, you know, never knew for sure it wouldn't affect you. And and obviously this was a big deal. And, you know, I don't think that today's United States leadership is at all analogous to the British or French empires in the sense that I don't think we're imperialistic the way they were. And I do think their right. arrogance and imperialism really were a big part of the problem because it sort of in a very human way made Germany under Wilhelm II and others sort of jealous, you know, and and then as Germany started to feel its oats and build up its power and come together and cohere as a nation since 1871, as we got into the early part of the 20th century, Germany wanted sort of its fair share of the spoils and France and Britain were setting the terms of competition, which were very ambitious, very imperialistic and often, Uh, connected to military force, at least um, in other places outside of Europe, if not within Europe always itself. So I don't necessarily feel like there's anything about American behavior today that's as bad as all that. And I certainly don't think that China is as bad as Germany was then. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. the Germans figuring out a war plan that would just chop off a, a, a quarter of France for them to keep. Um, you know, in both world wars, really, but certainly even in World War I and, and, and building a war plan that required immediate escalation and, you know, winning quickly in the West so that then forces could be turned to the East. That kind of right. m- mechanical automatic descent into all-out war was was frankly stunningly foolish for a Europe that was in the process of, you know, studying wonderful things about science and building the telegraph and railroads and it was such a time of opportunity and and discovery and possibility. And yet the political leadership and the military leadership uh, fundamentally underperformed, you know, and, right.
0: and we're uh, completely I, disconnected. In it.
1: Right. and I don't I don't see the Chinese leadership for all the concerns I have about it today. I don't see it being nearly that bad. Now, Putin, right. maybe he's a little different, uh, different issue. And, and Putin may be similar to mm-hmm. some of those leaders, although I think he's smarter than most of the European leaders, especially Wilhelm II, or especially the czar in Russia at the time, right. who might have been, you know, the most guilty uh, perpetrators of the conflict. But, um, you know, we also have- Among a, like, many, more, among, many yes. among many, among many. Uh, although I, I think there is a real pecking order, you know, and I think Germany right. and and Austria-Hungary and, and Russia were the worst. But I do think Britain and France contributed with their imperialism to this hyper-competitive environment which then led to the actions we've been discussing it, again in today's world I think the United States it makes a lot of mistakes but we're more benign than France and Britain mm. some of your li- listeners may not agree but that's certainly my impression and also even where we make mistakes and even where we're seen as you know expansionist we we have a system of alliances that uh, you know is much different from before World War I or before World War II, where people had paper treaties, but they were always reinterpreting just how seriously to take their commitments to each other. And some of the treaties were secret and none of them were backed up by the forward deployment of military force and permanent stationing of military forces on each other's territory. So it was sort of a a house of cards, the alliance systems preceding the world wars compared to what we have today. So I'm a lot more hopeful. But I, but I still, you know, I have enough nagging fears that yeah, we could sure. see echoes of the cold, echoes of the world wars that, 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 yes, I do. Even though I've spent now five minutes trying to challenge um, aspects of your question, I, I still have it, you know, back in my mind. It haunts me a little bit to this day.
0: Right. Yeah, there, there, there's something to it. No question about it. Although to, to go back to, uh, to the point you were making about, you know, contingency in history, it's interesting to note that the, much of the recent historiography about the First World War has really tried to argue against this idea, uh, this earlier idea in the historiography that you know th- there was something inevitable about it. If you look at you know the uh, the crises in in the in the two or three decades before including the most you know the, the one that was the closest one the balkan the balkan crisis in j- just before and then of course the july crisis some of the more recent historiography has really tried to argue that actually in many ways things were getting better the, te- the tensions were were receding and so on and so forth but to to get back to, to get back to sort of the, the meat of the the policy proposals in this book let's let's first begin perhaps precisely with china and there i would like to ask you before we go into some some perhaps more more detailed parts about the military balance and so on and so forth, how serious is the, is the military threat? In, in, in other words, how seriously should we take them when they when they make pronouncements such as, for example, you know that we that as Xi Jinping likes to say, that we can't defer the Taiwan question forever and ever, that Taiwan is is, is, uh, is a fundamental part of China, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Surely, the, you know, the Chinese are many things, but, the, but stupid they are not. And surely they realize that uh, an out-and-out out, uh, kinetic, as, as uh, people like to say, uh, intervention would have all sorts of unintended consequences, many of them very negative for China.
1: Yeah, I agree. I don't think China is very likely to try an invasion of Taiwan. I think it's very hard to do that with any confidence of success and certainly any confidence of low-cost success. So, a lot of people could die. A lot of Chinese could die. And even if they succeeded, a lot of Taiwanese might die, which would make it hard for China to establish its legitimacy as their leader or somehow really, you know, any kind of credibility, maintain the argument that it was just simply wanting to bring all the Chinese people together under one roof when it had just spent, you know, the previous months killing several hundred thousand of them. So, I think for China, by the way, also moving a lot of people across the Taiwan Strait by ship in an era of precision weaponry is not particularly promising. Right. You know, when you right. read about D-Day or even the invasions of the Pacific Islands by US forces in the nineteen forties, you know, the other side didn't have precision strike weaponry. They still right. made it very hard for us. Um, even when we mastered and controlled the skies and we um, you know, we had choices as to where we came ashore, especially in France and Mm-hmm. And yet, the other side could still make it very hard for us. And today, Taiwan, you would sort of know where the Chinese were coming, and right. you have and an presumably amazing... we would have weeks and weeks to observe them doing so, right? At least, yeah, at least many days. And, mm-hmm. um, and and you know, there are ways to be fooled, and cyber attacks might bring down command and control. And you know, there are ways that where it could be more complicated than than it would have been otherwise years ago. But I still think it's just a very unlikely roll of the dice because, as you said, the Chinese aren't stupid, but they don't mm-hmm. necessarily need to do that. They can blockade. Right. And, and the blockade doesn't have to be all that airtight. It can be partial. And maybe mm-hmm. they just, you know, sink a couple of ships and then tell other ships to, to be smart about not trying to reach Taiwan and, mm-hmm. you know, watch the insurance rates go way up. And, and maybe they can make exceptions for humanitarian goods like medicine and maybe mm-hmm. even some food. You know, and be very gracious in this offer and and yet still put enough of a squeeze on Taiwan's economy, which is two-thirds dependent on trade, that yep. they uh, push Taipei to the point where it agrees to some kind of terms. I think that's the kind of a strategy that we should expect.
0: right. and and so, in that kind of a scenario, given the mi- the military balance, and I'm curious where you think that is, because we we've heard a lot of talk recently about, Pentagon war games not going particularly well for the US. Uh, we know that the Chinese, uh, again, going back to the fact that they're not stupid, have observed um, the US way of war for the past 20, 30 years. So part of their their initial objective is just to make sure that it's difficult for the US to even get anywhere near the where the fight would be. So given all of that, in in the kind of scenario that, that you sketch out, how should the US react to that kind of uh, Well.
1: Yeah, I'm, I am worried that the military balance is more complex and in sort of inherently more complex than it was before. Even if we fully implement Secretary Mattis's national defense strategy and add more money to the defense budget. You know, we're talking about fighting China 100 miles from its own shores and 8000 miles from our own in an era when there's so many sensors and precision weapons and quiet submarines and advanced mines that it's just really hard to imagine dominating that fight quickly. And so uh, I'm more interested in uh, an asymmetric geographically asymmetric approach where we would combine robust economic warfare more or less across the board, more or less stop trading with China uh, right away. And we've got to basically prepare ourselves to be able to survive that (laughs) since there are a number of things we depend on from China, not just the other way around. And, And then use our military to reinforce the economic warfare rather than to destroy targets per se or break the blockade directly so i'm interested in interfering with shipping in the indo-pacific region you know and uh, ships don't have that many sailors on them you could perhaps even use non-lethal weapons to disable them you could try to save the sailors on ships that were struck and uh, and you're operating in an area where we have still a big advantage over china So for all those reasons, and because it's far away from China and therefore a little bit less inflammatory or escalatory uh, or foreboding for China, Mm because it's harder to see how that could be a prelude to a general attack on the mainland, that I think that's a much better way to go. And then you're essentially trying to put a squeeze on China, which may not be quite as uh, severe as the squeeze that China has put on Taiwan. But if you can sustain it, With no end in sight, then hopefully we have prospects for a diplomatic off-ramp that would be on terms that are not entirely disadvantageous to Taiwan. So that's the Mm -hmm. basic concept.
0: At the very least, one could deny them the the war termination that they would presumably seek, right, at some point. Right. And, you know, um,
1: I don't know war termination or victory is really very achievable for either side. You could imagine a certain battle or phase of the war ending, but you could Mm -hmm. also imagine whoever lost going back to the drawing board, building up uh, a new military, which either side could do pretty impressively in five years time, Mm -hmm. that was much better equipped to handle whatever type of conflict they wanted to try again next. And so I think we got to get out of our heads the idea that there's sort of a clean win against China that's in the cards for our military forces much more likely would be either a close fight or the possibility of escalation to where the homelands are being attacked or nuclear weapons use is even being threatened, or alternatively to a a pause in the fighting followed by a rearmament by whoever lost the first round as they prepare for a second round. So none of those to me feel very good or very conclusive.
0: Okay, so that's that's, I think uh, an excellent example of this idea of resolute restraint. And we've already talked a little bit about Russia, so perhaps I could ask you what your view is on Afghanistan, because I know that you've you've disagreed with with what the Biden administration has done in terms of pulling out pretty much all the troops. That so we we wait to see whether that that will really happen in the timeline, but at least that's the plan. Tell us why you why you don't think that's uh, necessarily uh, a great plan for Afghanistan. Well, I think
1: the country is going to fall apart, and. It's going to be a tragedy for the Afghan people. It won't be good for our interests either, because it will increase the probability of a larger extremist or terrorist sanctuary developing on Afghan soil, either out of the Haqqani network, which, as you know, is essentially part of the Taliban leadership and also part of Al Qaeda. Uh, And that's why the UN earlier this year documented that the Taliban was still in cahoots with Al Qaeda, Uh, or it could be just because in the chaotic environment that will increasingly typify a post-NATO Afghanistan, there'll be larger pockets of territory that nobody controls. And where we won't have the ability to see what's going on because we won't have our people or our technologies on the ground and our Afghan partners will be increasingly compromised in their ability to reach all different parts of the country. So uh, in the first instance, I think what it does is dramatically increase the prospects for state collapse, which is a humanitarian tragedy, but also uh, for terrorist sanctuary, which could be a strategic threat and danger to us. My guess is we can mitigate the, the latter, the strategic threat to the Western world by a robust uh, use of intelligence assets in the broader region and overhead and in the Arabian Sea and that sort of thing. But I'm, I'm not quite sure why that's better than just having a few thousand people on the ground where we were also able to help the Afghan government gradually improve its military capabilities and at least sort of stalemate the fight against the Taliban uh, and prevent terrorist attacks on the West from ever emerging again out of Afghanistan. So we were achieving those things in a way that we sort of, you know, we sort of knew how to do it. And we had been doing it for a while. The burden was 95% less than it had been a decade ago. So it was sustainable. And um, so what I think President Biden's done is, first of all, basically desert a or risk deserting a close American ally and friend that helped us win the Cold War against the Soviets with, through the Mujahideen fight. And then, you know, has been a partner for 20 years. Admittedly, a lot of those Afghans are corrupt and haven't done what they needed to do for their share of the bargain. But there are a lot of Afghans who are not corrupt and have been, you know, bearing the main burden of this conflict. And I fear that we are now abandoning them. That may not be a dire threat to our own well being or global stature, but it mm-hmm. just makes me it just makes me sad. You know, I'll say it in very simple terms. Sure, and, sure and, all, and, and also it does increase the probability of certain large swaths of Afghanistan just being inaccessible for the Afghan government and for NATO, which then inherently means that they're more uh, accessible to extremists. That does not prevent us from trying to watch and act and strike where we need to, and we don't have you know big bases in every part of the world where terrorism has footholds. But the, you know it's it's better to have um, small footholds relatively close to terrorist sanctuaries or potential terrorist sanctuaries. It's the best way to prevent them from becoming big sanctuaries, and we're just giving that up unnecessarily.
0: Yes, it it, it seems to me that the the thinking in the in the Biden administration was that. Ultimately, this was done more for domestic for domestic reasons than than the 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 more military ones that were specific to Afghanistan. The idea being that they kind of want you know in a way wanted to signal to the American people that you know we get it. We've been doing this for for twenty years and the war on terror more generally, but specifically pushing away the Taliban and rebuilding Afghanistan for the past twenty years, and that at some point you have to. Give up on the idea of, you know, turning Afghanistan into a a semi functioning state, whatever that would look like, and start, you know, rebuilding uh, the US and so on and so forth. But well,
1: uh, hang on before you go beyond that. that, Yeah, yeah, you're doing a nice job of of quoting uh, talking points by the Biden administration. But there there was very little evidence that any of that's true, uh, because. The public opinion, of course, Americans don't like the Afghanistan conflict. I mean, who would like a 20 year frustrating and sometimes deadly war? I mean, wars are not, you know, the winners of most popularity contests. But Americans were not clamoring for this to end. This was not a major issue in any presidential election since at least 2008. And And it was not ranking anywhere near the top 10 to 20 on issues Americans care about the most. The actual burden was much, much smaller, about 95% reduced from what it had been, as I said earlier. And uh, the number of American casualties even before the February 29th, 2020 uh, deal with the Taliban was in the range of a dozen or so a year, fewer than we have in training. I mean, it's still a dozen too many, but compared to 3000 killed on 9-11, um, it's you know potentially uh, a risk worth accepting. So I think the Biden administration talked itself into this argument. And what I really think it reflects is that President Biden and some of his team were tired of dealing with the conflict, or at least some of his civilian team. I think the military uh, was willing, as the least bad option, to stay with this ongoing effort. But I think President Biden is personally tired of it. And that's the best explanation for why we're leaving.
0: Very interesting. So I'd like to move now on to your proposal for a new uh, or a second or expanded um, four plus one framework in terms of thinking about challenges. Now, just for our listeners, the existing four plus one, let's say, in terms of uh, threats and challenges to the U.S. is the constellation of China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, and then the plus one being international or or transnational uh, terrorism. Tell us why you think it's these are not sufficient anymore why there's a need to also go and encompass other elements and which ones these are.
1: Well, I'm not talking necessarily about the US armed forces or allied armed forces. So, I'm talking about, you know, one step before that process of thinking, what are the threats facing the country and what are the threats facing the world? And I think you and I and most people would agree that, you know, the COVID-19 experience has reminded us that there are many other threats that are not of a classic nation state military nature that are out there. And uh, it's not at all obvious that they are less important or worrisome than the four plus one that you mentioned that, you know, has uh, has uh, elicited focus and resources from the Department of Defense for the last half dozen years. Uh, When General Dunford, who was previously chairman of the Joint Chiefs, when he and others came up with that four plus one, they were focused on Pentagon war planning. And sometimes as a nation, we conflate Pentagon war planning or threat planning with more national threat planning. But I think by now we should know in an era of global warming of pandemics, as well as advanced microbiology that makes new kinds of biological weapons possible of ongoing nuclear proliferation. Um, and of digital dangers in the cyber realm, in the artificial intelligence realm. And then finally, in a world where our own country is not holding together very well and showing fissures and and threats from within, that that new four plus one is really just as much in need of attention. Again, primarily not from the Pentagon, although there may be cases where superimposing the new 4 plus 1 on the old 4 plus 1 makes some of the old problems worse or more complicated. Mm-hmm. But ge- generally speaking, I'm suggesting that biological threats, nuclear proliferation threats, digital dangers, climate threats, and internal political disunity that these now rival the nation state problems that you mentioned before in terms of potential, uh, you know, harm to our national security and that of our allies. and in a way, you know, I was just trying to find a slightly clever, I hope, um, way of framing problems that everyone's aware of, but I just thought it was useful to create this parallel structure because it just serves to give sort of a symmetry and to, to put the new threats on an equal footing with the old threats. They're not just sort of appendages or afterthoughts or asterisks, but mm-hmm. they are their own four plus one. And, and the nice thing is by using these broad categories like cyber or climate, or biological danger, including pandemic, nuclear proliferation danger. These are big and broad enough that I think I'm, I think I'm getting at most of the big new threats of today's world. Uh, right. You know, with that framing, which is exactly what the Pentagon was trying to do with the original four plus one. So right. that's right. that's why I find it a, just a useful organizing construct. It may not be all that particularly original or brilliant, but it, to me, it's just it's just um, intellectually and mentally uh, helpful for reasons of analysis and organization
0: mm-hmm. yes, certainly and we unfortunately we don't have time to go into the details of each one, but I'd like to focus in sort of the last uh, the last 10 minutes here or so on that last one that last plus one the the internal dangers to the country because in a way and I think this is how you present this new constellation in a way that is the bedrock right the foundation of everything without that of course it's difficult to project a coherent, um, foreign policy, and for the U.S. to to, to remain engaged in the, in these other issues. So, how how do you think about this problem of of the fracturing of American society and the fracturing of a, of a consensus on what the role of the U.S. is in the world? Where did it yeah. where did it come from, and how do we how do we solve that?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, just to dramatize the importance of this. Uh, you know, again, the United States did not always think that we should stay internationally engaged in sort of backstopping most major alliances or promoting a, uh, you know, along with others, a open world economic order. This was not the way we governed ourselves up until roughly the outbreak of World War II. And so there's no reason to think that it's automatic or guaranteed to persist. I have a colleague at Brookings, a very brilliant historian named Bob Kagan who's been making this point that maybe today's world is feeling more like the 1920s, uh, at least in the United States debate, in our own sensibilities about what role we should play in the world going forward. And a lot of Americans are saying, you know, why should I pay taxes to support a big military that's more involved in protecting allies abroad than in protecting me at home, especially when this whole this whole world order that we built, the existing set of institutions and practices, doesn't seem to be helping me or my family economically or with our security in general. So that's where the crisis arises. And another way to put it dramatically, although again, it's not a particularly uh, original insight on my own, but I like to remind people that when Donald Trump ran for president in 2016, he was openly critical of allies and alliances and our major trading practices and regimens. And he threatened to undo a lot of them and to pull back. Now, he actually did not do that. He actually Mm -hmm. did not pull us out of any previously ratified trade agreements. He just chose not to pursue TPP. And, you know, he demanded changes to NAFTA if he was going to stay in that deal, which he got. Mm -hmm. And he threatened to pull out of alliances or to, you know, not defend certain U.S. allies if they failed failed to do their fair share of military burden sharing, as he saw it. But he actually did not end any alliances or pull our forces out of any countries where they were located when he became president. But he said he might. In fact, he said he wanted to, and he got elected president of the United States, which means the American voter, in some ways, was even more willing to consider radical ideas than Trump himself as president later uh, became. And that makes me worry. If we could vote for that kind of a president once, maybe we could do it again. And maybe the next time, The president will actually do what he what he threatened to do instead of just making a lot of noise about it. Ultimately, I I mean, I don't give Trump a lot of credit for much of anything, but ultimately he was talked out of some of his bad ideas, at least for the first four years. (laughs) We'll see Mm if he has a second go at it and how he would behave then. If he felt that he had been reelected, maybe he'd feel vindicated in those more almost primordial, almost more nativistic kind of uh, Mm -hmm. views. And maybe he then would. chop up these alliances, pull our forces home. And I have no reason to think that Eurasia is going to police itself effectively. You know, I, there are enough rivalries, let's say, between Jap- Japan, Korea and China still, or between Russia and its neighbors. And even if, you know, it's not credible that Russian tanks are going to try to march on Germany, if they try to march on Estonia in a world where the United States is no longer helping the rest of the NATO back up commitment to the easternmost part of the alliance today, then um, where does that conflict end? You know, um, maybe Putin thinks he can get away with it, but then the European Union tries to mount a response. And, you know, I think Mm -hmm. if the United States pulls back from these alliances, the world gets a lot more dangerous. And I don't say this because I'm a believer the United States is more ethical or more intelligent uh, as a nation state Mm -hmm. than our partners and other democracies. But we have a different role. We're bigger, we're further away, which means that we're not as caught up in these immediate squabbles. Um, mm-hmm. We have a we have a melting pot demographically, which means we don't have a sort of narrative of a certain ethnic group or nation state sort of you know through history uh, motivating our foreign policy the way some of the big countries, especially in um, in Eurasia or especially in East Asia, um, mm-hmm. as as well as maybe you know Germany and a couple other uh, European countries, a, a, as they do. So so we've got, uh, you know, a melting pot, a constitution that brings us back to basic principles of, uh, you know, equality uh, of the individual and of all countries. These are our founding concepts. We don't always live up to them very well, but they are indeed what the country is based upon. And that's unusual, you know, it's unusual in, and there are other wonderful countries like Switzerland that have, you know, complex demographics and so forth, but they not may not be big enough to play this kind of a role or other countries that have wonderful democracies uh, like Germany, but they have a more complex history and a little bit, you know, more of a ethnically based polity. So I just think the United States role is unique and essential. And therefore, if the United States stops being willing to play that role, it's bad news, not only for us, but for everybody else. So that's where the one becomes not only a a problem about our domestic cohesion and tranquility and happiness as a people, but as uh, you know, as a matter of global security as well.
0: Yes, and as a European, I just like to add to your point about the U.S. being a melting pot. That I think, in many ways, as someone who who lives there but who 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 comes from Europe, I I was always amazed at how and how little credit actually Americans give themselves for this extraordinary ability to to mix all sorts of people from all you know all parts of the world it's something that i think europe has a lot more trouble with and you know maybe we see more of the fracture and more of the dissent in american society it's more mediatized it's more perhaps transparent um, yeah. but uh, i think uh, in many ways it remains a great strength of the us
1: yeah um well you know, and, and thank you for the kind words, although, again, I'm, I, I don't really like to I'm trying to be analytical and to the extent anybody is humanly capable of this to pretend I don't live in any country when I'm doing my analysis. And sure. uh, of yeah. course, of course, that's an unrealistic standard. But, um, you know, having lived through now the Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan wars and the Trump presidency, there are plenty of times I get angry with my own government. And I'm uh, unimpressed by the quality of governance in the United States and and by what we Americans are able to achieve. So I am not making an argument about so-called American exceptionalism. If what you think of is that somehow we are are better, that, you know, that we were sort of going back to the early days of our republic, uh, sort of mankind's last best hope that we right. you know just have a pure heart as a nation, so to speak or a more enlightened view of humanity i I, there are fantastic things about our history but i think anybody who looks at our behavior even domestically with our race problems and other other matters recognizes just how flawed americans are uh including myself (laughs) obviously but 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 it's more that american exceptionalism means that we're big and we're far away from eurasia And Eurasia really is the main problem in world politics, if you'll forgive me Mm -hmm. for saying so. That's Mm -hmm. where most of the big wars have started. And so it's, I think, a a country that can usefully help stabilize Eurasia um, arguably comes, you know, has a better chance of achieving that if it's not in Eurasia, if it's not seen as having any particular territorial designs. And, And also we're big enough that we can represent a substantial fraction of world GDP and military power all by ourselves. And then you add up our big allies into the mix and we constitute a sort of a higher fraction of world, you know, uh, GDP and military spending as a percent of the total than we've ever seen in history before this sort of Western community of nations. But without the United States sort of spearheading that or, you know, undergirding that, it's not really a system of alliances at all. It's just a bunch of individual countries. In various kinds of smaller regional associations, so mm-hmm. I, I think American exceptionalism is is not about our ethics or our brains. It's about our location, our size, our history, our constitution, um, and it leads to a place where we have a role to play that nobody else can play, and we're just going to have to, you know, hopefully accept that role because, again, there's no alternative right now. There's there's no no other group of nations or individual nation that can play that same stabilizing function.
0: Right. Well, terrific. I would love to keep going and ask you all all sorts of uh, other questions, but unfortunately, we're out of time. So I'd like to thank uh, my guest, Michael O'Hanlon. Again, the book is The Art of War in an Age of Peace, U.S. Grand Strategy and Resolute Restraint. It's out now with uh, Yale University Press, so make sure to get your copy. Michael, thank you very much for coming on the show, and uh, best wishes with the book.
1: David, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, and uh, best wishes to you and your listeners for the summer as well.
0: Thanks for tuning in to David's Politics Show. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Until next time, so long.